bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 7th, 2017. This week, 51 years ago, Senator Henry Jackson introduced the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966. That was March 7, 1966, to be exact. The National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 was later signed into law on October 15th of that year. That legislation was, and still is, one of the most influential preservation bills ever passed. It created the National Register for Historic Places and the list of National Historic Landmarks. It also created state historic preservation offices. So in many ways, the National Historic Preservation Act laid the foundation for the Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit. Today also marks 42 years since Carla Anderson Hills took the oath of office as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. She was the first woman to head HUD. In a bit, I'll talk about the confirmation of the new HUD Secretary, Ben Carson. But first, let's dive into this week's tax credit news. In our general section today, I'll talk about President Donald Trump's first address to a joint session of Congress and what he had to say about his tax reform plans. Then, I'll discuss Carson's confirmation as the new HUD Secretary. In low-income housing tax credit news, I'll talk about Senators Maria Cantwell and Orrin Hatch reintroducing a bill to improve and expand the low-income housing tax credit. I'll also have details about the population estimates that were released by the IRS that are used to calculate the annual state ceilings for low-income housing tax credits as well as private activity bonds. Then, I'll share a report released by the Government Accountability Office on the role of syndicators in low-income housing tax credit transactions. After that, I'll have news on a bill introduced to create a new state low-income housing tax credit in Minnesota. In historic tax credit news, I'll outline a bill introduced to reinstate the popular state historic tax credit in Alabama. I'll close out with our renewable energy tax credit section, where I'll discuss a bill to create a state renewable energy investment tax credit in Maryland. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, President Donald Trump last week delivered his first address to a joint session of Congress. As expected, Trump did briefly touch on his promise for tax reform. But, unfortunately, he gave no additional details about the tax plan he had said was forthcoming. Trump said, and I quote, My economic team is developing historic tax reform that will reduce the tax rate on our companies so they can compete and thrive anywhere and with anyone. Close quote. He also talked about massive tax relief for the middle class and hinted at a border tax. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, the Trump administration aims to have tax reform passed this summer. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin confirmed with Fox Business Network last week that the goal is to have tax reform voted through and signed by the August recess. In other news, the Senate on Thursday confirmed Ben Carson 
as Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. He was confirmed with a mostly party-line vote of 58 to 41. As the new head of HUD, Carson will oversee the department's nearly $49 billion budget for 2017. One of the big items on Carson's to-do list will be filling key positions, positions such as Deputy Secretary and the head of the Federal Housing Administration. What we do know is that Carson's chief of staff will be Sheila Greenwood. Greenwood was the HUD assistant secretary in the George W. Bush administration. At his confirmation hearing in January, Carson said that he would conduct a listening tour to hear directly from HUD staff. He said that he wants to, and I quote, hear from people with boots on the ground who are administering programs, close quote. We'll keep you posted as details of Carson's housing priorities emerge. As you know, you can follow me on Twitter. It's always a good way to get quick updates. My handle is at Novogratic. In local housing tax credit news, it's with great excitement that I can report that Senators Maria Cantwell and Orrin Hatch are expected to reintroduce the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act sometime today. Cantwell and Hatch, you probably recall, introduced similar legislation in the last Congress. Now, this bill would increase the low-income housing tax credit allocation authority by 50%. That's right, 50% phased in over five years, at 10% a year. The bill would also establish a minimum 4% tax credit rate, which would provide great assistance to taxes and bond finance properties. Another key provision, particularly for taxes and bond financing and rural developments, is that the bill allows income averaging. Now, there are a number of other changes that are too numerous to elaborate on here. You can read a section-by-section recap of the bill and the list of modifications from the versions of the bill introduced in the last session of Congress by visiting our website. Simply go to the Affordable Housing Resource Center breaking news area. Cantwell told attendees yesterday, Monday, at the National Council of State Housing Agency's Legislative Conference that she and Senator Hatch are expected to be joined by at least nine other senators. The other nine senators are Ron Wyden, Democrat from Oregon, and also the ranking member on the Senate Finance Committee, Charles Schumer, the minority leader for the Democrats in the Senate, Democrat from New York, Cory Booker, Democrat from New Jersey, Senator Dean Heller, Republican from Nevada, Patrick Leahy, Democrat from Vermont, Jeff Merkley, Democrat from Oregon, Lisa Murkowski, a Republican from Alaska, and Brian Schatz, Democrat from Hawaii. And then I should also note Todd Young, newly elected to the Senate, Republican from Indiana, is also going to be one of the original nine co-sponsors, along with Senator Hatch of the Cantwell Bill. As I should note, as I'm sure you know, Senator Hatch is the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Now, similar legislation is expected to be introduced later in the House of Representatives. As always, we'll keep you posted at www.taxcredithousing.com and through my Twitter account, my handle being at Novogratik. I'd like to encourage you to reach out to the senators who are co-sponsoring the legislation, as well as to Senator Cantwell herself, and thank them for their efforts on behalf of those in need of affordable housing. Also, I'd encourage you to reach out to other senators who have not co-sponsored yet and encourage them to get on. In other affordable housing news, the IRS has released its calendar year resident population figures. They were released last week. These figures are used to determine annual state ceilings for both low-income housing tax credits as well as tax-exempt private activity bonds. 
Now, the population figures are for the calendar year ended July 1, 2016, but they affect this year's 2017's state ceilings. The local monthly tax credit maximum amount for each state is generally going to be the greater of $2.71 million, or the state's population, times $2.35. That's where these resident population figures come in. You take those population figures, multiply them by $2.35, and take the greater of that number, or $2.71 million. The productivity bond cap is calculated similarly. It's the greater of $100 times the state population, or $305,315,000. The biggest takeaway from the IRS notice is that eight states will receive the small state low-income housing tax credit minimum of $2.7 million. This is because they have a population of less than 1.153 million people. And this is the same number of states as last year. The District of Columbia will also receive the small state minimum. As I noted, there are no changes in that list from last year. Now, for the small state bond cap, which affects states with about 3 million people and less, there will be about 19 states, or there will be 19 states, plus the District of Columbia that will receive the minimum. Nine states will actually see a decrease in the low-income housing tax rate ceiling because of their diminishing population and not being eligible for the small state minimum. Five of them will see a drop in their state bond cap as well. All the rest, and by that I mean those that don't get the small state minimum and didn't see a population decrease, will see slight increases in their ceilings based upon the increases in their population. That includes 33 states that will see an increase in local housing tax credits and 26 states that will see an increase in their bond cap ceiling. By the way, Utah saw the greatest population increase and Illinois saw the greatest decrease in terms of actual numbers of residents. West Virginia had the largest percentage decrease in population. Regionally, the South and the West saw the biggest growth. That's an ongoing trend. The Midwest had modest growth. And the Northeast remained essentially flat in population during the year. If you'd like more details, I did write a blog post with a number of highlights. You can find it at www.novaco.com blog. You can also find the population figures themselves at www.taxcredithousing.com. They're an IRS notice 2017-19. In other news, I would like to talk about a report from the Government Accountability Office, or the GAO. The report highlights the important role that syndicators play in the low-income housing tax credit community. Now, this is the first part of the third installment in a series of three reports the GAO was asked to create about the low-income housing tax credit. Let me say that again. It's the first part, the first half, of the third installment in a three-part series coming from the GAO about the local housing tax credit. Now, the second part of this third installment will relate to an assessment of local housing tax credit project costs, and I'll talk more about that later. Now, this just-released report, the first half of the report, discusses two things. The characteristics of active syndicators and their activity in the local housing tax credit market from 2005 to 2014, and the role syndicators play in the local housing tax credit market and factors that influence their use. Now, the GAO gathered data from 32 syndicators. Of the 32 syndicators, 19 were for profits and 13 were nonprofit. Syndicators offer both proprietary and multi investor funds. Collectively, 
The surveyed syndicators raised more than $100 billion in low-income housing tax credit equity since 1986. These investments help fund more than 20,000 properties, placing in service about 1.4 million units through 2014. The report describes the role of, that syndicators play in the low-income housing tax credit market. Now, the observations and descriptions won't surprise many in the low-income housing tax credit field. The report noted that syndicators play several roles in the low-income housing tax credit market. For example, syndicators help connect investors and developers and oversee the fund's acquisition and the ongoing management of, of the developments. The report observed that there are several factors that influence whether an investor uses a syndicator. For an example, an investor might not have the capacity or expertise to directly acquire and manage a low-income housing tax credit investment. And in deciding which syndicators to use, the report noted that investors consider several variables, such as prior relationships and the amount of project equity syndicators sought for the tax credits. The report also commented that a syndicator's knowledge of local or regional markets also plays an important role to help investors, such as banks, receive positive consideration under the Community Reinvestment Act. To read the report, it's titled Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, The Role of Syndicators, you can go to www.taxcredithousing.com. Now, the second part, the other half of this third report in this Low-Income Housing Tax Credit series, is expected to discuss development costs, as I mentioned earlier, and it's slated for release in early 2018. It keeps getting delayed. Now, my colleague Peter Lawrence will provide more insight about the series in a future post on the Notes of Novogratz blog, which you can find, as I noted earlier, online at www.novoco.com blog. Also, you can learn more about the role of syndicators this month by registering for the Novogratz Developer Syndicator Relationship Webinar. The webinar will be Friday, March 24th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, and you can register at www.novoco.com webinars. Turning to state housing news, Minnesota legislators introduced a bipartisan bill recently to create a Minnesota state low-income housing tax credit. It was the first bill introduced this year to create a new state low-income housing tax credit across the country. Legislation was introduced in both the Minnesota State House and Senate to create a credit that has an annual cap of $7 million. The legislation calls for the state low-income housing tax credit to be allocated to Minnesota developments that are eligible for the federal low-income housing tax credit and are not financially feasible without the state credit. The allocation would be for one-sixth of the allowable federal low-income housing tax credit amount. The properties do not have to have received federal credits, they just need to be eligible for them. Although, it's highly unlikely properties would be built with assistance only from the state credit. The legislation also requires that half of the credits be granted to properties in Greater Minnesota. Greater Minnesota means areas outside the metropolitan regions of the state. The bill calls for the state tax credit to take effect this year, and it would sunset at the end of 2022. We'll keep tracking this legislation and let you know of any progress, and you can find the bill at www.taxcredithousing.com. The Senate version is Minnesota SF1181. Now, if you'd like additional information about the Minnesota proposed state local housing tax credit or other state local housing tax credits, please conduct a Novogratic office near you. In historic tax credit news, I'm happy to report bills have been introduced in both houses of the Alabama legislature 
introduced last week to bring back the state historic tax credit. If you remember, the Alabama state credit expired last year when the Senate President Pro Tem wouldn't let the Senate consider an extension bill. He cited budget concerns. That was after the bill had passed the House by 91 to 4 vote. So, the tax credit expired last May 2nd, but last week's legislation would restart the program effective January 1, 2018, and go through through the end of 2027. The legislation would essentially reinstate the previous tax credit. The credit would be equal to 25% of qualified rehabilitation expenditures with a transaction cap of $5 million for non-residential properties. For residential properties, the cap would be $50,000. The annual cap, program cap that is, for the years 2018 through 2027 would be $20 million, although unused credits could be carried over. The cumulative total for that period would have a cap of $200 million. The most significant difference is that the new tax credit would be refundable. The previous version could only be used to reduce tax liability, but not to get a refund. The state Senate bill had 28 co-sponsors, including Dale Marsh, the man who stopped last year's legislation from advancing. The House bill has 88 co-sponsors. Because co-sponsors make up well over half of each chamber of the legislature, the bill does appear likely to pass. You can find the bills at www.historictaxcredits.com. They're HB 345 and SB 262. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, a bill was introduced to create a state Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit in Maryland. Now, the legislation would create a credit for 50% of eligible costs for Renewable Energy Tax Credit property, property that's built or purchased and placed in service in brownfield sites and low-income communities. There would be a 35% credit for eligible property in all other areas. Now, the tax credit would begin in 2018 and sunset at the end of 2022. There would be a $5 cap for business use and a $10,500 cap for residential use. The credit would be claimed in the first year after the installation was placed in service for residential use and in four equal increments if it was for business use. There would also be aggregate caps of $125 million for business use and $25 million for residential use. The bill uses the Section 48 definition of renewable energy property, That means it includes solar, wind, geothermal, and other renewable sources. Now, the legislation was introduced by five state senators, all Democrats. You can read the bill at www.energytaxcredits.com. It's Maryland SB 926. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Just a reminder, we're always looking for and accepting topic suggestions for the podcast. If there's any particular tax credit question you have, or you'd like us to cover, simply fill out the suggestion form on our website. Go to www.novaco.com podcast. Then you click on the podcast topic suggestion form on the left-hand side, and you can submit your suggestion. Well, that's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. 
Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.